The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Brian Moon from Perigee and Technologies. And I'm Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. Today, we welcome Ann Miller, lead human factors researcher and team lead with Cerner Corporation in Kansas City, Missouri where she develops, supervises, and conducts human factors research related to high-risk electronic healthcare record applications. A highly experienced researcher in the fields of human system integration and human factors in healthcare, her research foci include the role of information technology in supporting resilience in clinical decision-making, clinical communication, and care coordination in complex clinical care contexts, and translating complex human systems theory and research into application development. Welcome, Anne, and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to catch up with you folks again. Yeah, we definitely uh, we definitely want to catch up uh, and certainly hear about what you're doing today. But I actually want to start by going a bit further back, uh, get you to be somewhat reflective. So you, uh, you started your career as a registered nurse in Australia. And I'm kind of wondering what led to your shift toward human-computer interaction and human factors. Well, it was a sort of one of these sort of confluence of events. So I'd been, um, I was an intensive care nurse, um, and I had two small children, and um, basically, I guess that at the end of the day, I was burnt out. And that was burnt out through shift work. This was in the 80s. And there wasn't a lot or that the, um, the, the knowledge about how to structure shift work was really emerging. Um, we were working on some pretty, pretty radical shift patterns um, in terms of night shift, day shift, afternoon shift. Um, and over a period of time, um, that really, really added up. Um, in addition to that, I'd really gotten as far as I um, was able to at the time as a bedside nurse. So career opportunities uh, certainly changed um, at the late 80s, but in the mid 80s, um, it, there were really only three options. You remained at the bedside, you went into um, nursing administration or you went into nursing education. And I was really not ready for administration or education and really had sort of gotten as far as I was uh, really able to go um, in at the bedside. Um, and I was interested in research. I was interested in learning and I was interested in um, in moving beyond or not being stuck in where I was. So I went and spoke to a, um, a, a vocational psychologist who suggested that maybe I might be interested in applied psychology. I then found a degree in applied psych and uh, took that up at Monash University in Melbourne. And there I was really fortunate to have a lecturer who's, who's uh, passed away uh, some years ago now, but his name is uh, Colin Cameron, Professor Colin Cameron. And he was one of the early human factors researchers in Loughborough in the UK. And he was great at telling stories and he was telling stories about, he told us a lot of stories about um, 
how Loughborough was involved uh, with the Royal Air Force after the Second World War. Um, and these guys were asked by the, the Royal Air Force um, to explain why it was that young pilots seemed to have a uh, propensity to drive their aeroplanes into the ground, which sort of seemed like a rather silly thing to do. So the more he was talking about um, how the displays of cockpits in, uh, uh, were really uh, affecting the way that um, pilots were understanding their orientation in space, the more I started to make linkages between um, what he was telling me and some of the equipment that we were working at in the ICUs. Um, mechanical ventilators, for example, were simply a console of knobs and they were all exactly the same knobs and they were set up very nicely in about uh, four rows of about 10 columns of knobs. Um, and using these knobs, we were um, required to to manage uh, ventilatory patterns for these patients. Um, so I started to see the relationship between um, what he was telling me um, about his work in human factors and the sort of work that I was doing in the ICU. Information fragmentation, information distribution, um, different kinds of lighting, all of this sort of made a lot of sense. But at the, in, the, in the 90s, there really wasn't any healthcare in human factors, especially not in Australia. Um, and that really, so I found myself um, doing uh, human-computer interaction in telecommunications. So I really did get out of, uh, out of healthcare for a little while. And then the seminal report to Eris Human came out from the Institute of Medicine here in the United States. Um, and as another confluence of events, I happened to be attending a human factors conference in Australia and uh, started talking to people about uh, doing, um, a, doing a PhD and uh, having chatted to some folks, I uh, met uh, Professor Penny Sanderson who had just returned from the United States and was very much interested in uh, getting into healthcare. So I was interested in doing a PhD. She was interested in understanding more, more, understanding more about healthcare, and that seemed to be the perfect match. And the rest, as they say, is history. Right? Yeah, the confluence of events. Uh, it's funny how um, the different problems that we see in different domains uh, just resonate. It to what we're already familiar with, and then your your story about listening to the cockpit is, cockpit issues, yeah, being similar to what you have experienced. Oh, it was very powerful. Um, his his stories and the connections, and saying, "Hang on a second, I worked on a machine that did exactly the same thing." That was you mean to tell me that those machines can lead us into into errors? You know that we can. Is that why they're so hard to use? Because is that why we have to double check them all the time? Not because we're at fault, but because of poor design? Really? That was a revelation. I mean, that was seriously a revelation. I'm curious, back to that occupational uh, therapist, did, uh, did they indicate anything in particular that uh, they thought was what would make you a good match for? Well, the first thing that she came up with was um, nursing. <laughs> So, so, so applied psychology was the second thing on the list, which was kind of funny. So, so since those uh, early days, you, your career has been marked by roles as a 
as you said, a practitioner early on, uh, later lecturer, professor, and researcher, and, and you've been working across two continents. I'm wondering if you can sort of uh, uh, walk through sort of what you liked most and least about each of those roles and in each continent. So I, I don't know that you've have you practiced medicine in the U.S.? No, no, I have not been a, a healthcare practitioner in the U.S. I've been fortunate to have spent eight years um, in the Department of Anesthesiology at um, Vanderbilt University Medical Center, working with uh, Professor uh, Matt Weinger and the team down there. But no, I am not have not been a registered nurse in the United States, and I do not pra- I have not practiced in the United States. So. However, it was uh, it was very um, going into Vanderbilt. So one of the first projects that I did there as a postdoc involved uh, doing uh, some observations in the United States. And I swear that the language, other than the accents and other than being referred to as Miss Anne, um, anything else was pretty much uh, was very very familiar. The language was similar. The technology was similar. The patients were similar. The, the ICU layouts were similar and that kind of, that kind of um, it all sort of, um, that sort of stands to reason. Um, we tend to read the same kinds of textbooks, we go to the same kinds of conferences, we purchase technology from the same vendors. Um, so it's sort of not that surprising Australia and uh, the US are similarly you know, first world countries um, in terms of education and structures. So it wasn't really surprising that I didn't find it uh, too different. It was quite similar. It felt very familiar. But um, as to your other question about, yes, I've definitely moved between an applied role, an academic role, and now an applied role again. And they serve very different functions for me. Um, in the applied world, um, I get to see and get, I seem to get access to um, access to technology, access to the people who build technology, who design technology, who think about how technologies can be put together. But one of the problems, and it's certainly one of the challenges that we have, that I have in my current role, is that working in an applied technology-focused environment, we have a lot of difficulty getting access to real-world environments where we can um, work directly with um, the people whom we design the technology for. And in the other, in the other, um, in an academic role, uh, particularly at Vanderbilt, um, and also in Australia at uh, at Monash and University of Queensland, we were we had enormous access to clinicians there, right on your front door. But you don't get access to uh, the builders of technology. The, the, it, so there's a, a something of a gap. And I found myself jumping from um, situations where I have very close contact and easy access to uh, the people who, um, which, who, who I'm interested in designing technology for and then jumping into situations where I'm working very closely with the uh, developers and the builders and the designers of those technologies and have found that um, for me that works, it works in the sense that I'm able to take 
um, be inspired by the, the clinical environment, take that understanding of what people are doing, how they're doing it, the contexts um, in which they're working, and take that into a technological environment such as CERNA um, and communicate that directly and, and have a strong influence on, on how people understand that technology and context and then jumping out of that again into the applied world to sort of see how that works. So that's been, that's, that's how it's, my career has really worked. It's jumping from a very practical in the world kind of situations then out into um, into development in environments, um, back into contexts where I can really hone uh, research skills and do research um, from a from a, a, a purely research perspective. Learn those sorts of things and then take them back into an into a development environment. That's just sort of the way that I've shaped my career. <laughs> Others will probably do things very differently. It feels like also there's uh, a lot of opportunity to, uh, well, maybe opportunity is not the right word for it, a lot of requirement to sort of bite your tongue in both of those situations. I, I was, as I was listening to you talk about uh, being a researcher uh, and then observing nurse practice, for instance, I, I was sort of imagining you seeing errors about to happen because you sort of know that the direction these things are going, but as a researcher, um, you don't necessarily feel empowered to sort of jump in and, and, and help correct that direction. Have you, have you had those kinds of experiences where you've, you, you've been in one role or the other and, and you sort of know what the other side looks like, but you need to, you know, for, for political and, and other reasons to sort of hold back on what you offer? Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I mean, the first, the, fir the first thing, First thing to be said about that is um, the time that I spent in telecommunications was really important because it changed my identity. Um, prior to that, I very much identified as a nurse. If somebody said, what do you do? What's your profession? I would say I was a nurse. But in a telecommunications environment, that makes no sense whatsoever. And it's important. It's an important part of of changing, of me really getting out of healthcare and really changing my identity. I'm not a nurse anymore. I'm a human computer interaction researcher or I'm a human factors researcher. And then moving further into, um, into a PhD where I'm, and into the applied psych degrees, again, it was fundamental in changing my identity. So when people ask me, who, who, who are you? I'm a human factors researcher and once upon a time in the very, 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 very distant past, I used to be a registered nurse, but I'm not anymore. Um, so that helps in terms of going into these environments. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a nurse anymore. And my knowledge base as a nurse um, in terms of nursing practice is radically out of date. So that to some extent um, changes the way that I interact with nurses. So it also gives me the, 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 the opportunity to suspend what I think. Um, and it make, gives me the permission to ask stupid questions such as, can you tell me what you're doing now? So I may think that they're actually going down a pathway that leads them to error, but actually they can come back and tell me that they're actually doing something that has a rational um, and sensible basis for. 
So there are t- a lots of elements to that. First of all, is that I may not necessarily that they're going into 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 um, they're they're working towards an error. I may not know that, um, but if I suspect that, I can ask a naive question such as, "Can you tell me what you're doing now? Can you tell me why you're doing that? Can you tell me what you expect to happen as a consequence of that?" And that may change um, a person's. Um, understanding of the situation that you, that they're in so this is a naturalistic decision um, podcast and you can use those sorts of naturalistic decision cues can you tell me what you're attending to being um, what is your what is your status in terms of uh, level one essay situation awareness uh, what's going on at the moment what does this mean for you so you can ask those situation awareness questions and even in doing that um, you you can sh- get that person to stand back and think about what they are doing, um, whether or not they were going uh, down an erroneous pathway or not. So to some extent, there's the opportunity to have people reflect on what they're doing. If I thought they were going down some pathway, but I'm not the expert on that pathway in any case. Uh, So I'm there as a researcher, not as a clinician. Right. Yeah, that uh, that that identity change is. Um, it sounds like a really interesting period, especially as you come back in, uh, and, and you're starting to engage more with the community you were once in, but but having a a very different status, if you will, and a very different orientation. It's really like putting on a different set of glasses. You're looking at the world through a different um, set of set of lenses, um, and I. I understand the language of the of, of, of clinicians' language, but I see it these days through a very very different um, set of lenses. I don't see it. I don't see the. I don't see the work as a nurse. I see it as a as a human factors researcher, and that's really important. I mean, it was also really important um, to stand on research principles, especially in the early days. Um, as I made that transition um, and to really think about how I was asking questions um, and being deliberate about being naive and really asking myself what assumptions am I making about this. Uh, so a lot of, um, of being mindful of what lens I was looking at the world through um, and that was kind of difficult in the in coming back into into um, into healthcare um, after being in in the in a telecommunications environment. Um, I was very mindful of what lens I was looking at the world through and trying to not look at the world from a, an ex nurse's perspective, but rather look at the world from a a HF perspective, and I very much depended on um, people like my colleagues um, through my PhD, Penny Sanderson, and others to to really challenge um, my perspectives. And they- yeah, that, that's a really hard thing to teach, especially um, you know even for knowledge elicitation to to try to get people to understand that that you're there to elicit the knowledge. You're not necessarily there to question it or you know get into a debate. Uh, and, and as I was doing some knowledge management work in organizations, I, I sort of went back and forth as to whether it's better to have someone within the organization do the knowledge elicitation or someone from the outside. 
because it's a lot easier coming from the outside to ask those naive questions and get interesting responses. And um, but but um, but if you're in the organization or or you have experience in the domain, uh, I imagine there's a, a a fair amount of of learning about yourself uh, and sort of what the purpose is of your activity to sort of work through as part of your as part of your training, uh, so so that you don't. So you don't get yourself into those situations where you're you're having a debate with the expert about what the right thing to do is. Yeah, that's not your role. Uh, it's not my role to debate. Um, it's my role to to understand and clarify the intention of what they've said and to understand why they might think that. But it's not my role to debate that or even to question it. Yeah, or, or even to learn because, you know, while, while you may need to, Get familiar and, and understand the context and understand the, the, as you said before, the sort of rationale for the decisions. You're not there to really learn them. You're not there to become the expert. And that's a, that's a very subtle distinction in this knowledge elicitation that I think takes a while for people to pick up on, especially if you're trying to train people in the organization. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the contextual inquiry, and I find that a very um, an effective method for data, uh, data collection. But um, sometimes, uh, and one of the tenets of that is, you know, assume a master-apprentice role uh, where the person that you're working with is the master and, and you give yourself permission and you ask them to give you permission to be an apprentice. Um, and I think as far as that goes, to your point, you know, yeah, that's, that's there's a point at which, no, you're not learning the job. Um, you're there to understand the work, but you're not there to be an apprentice. Um, so that model to some extent breaks down. I understand and I do see the value in um, gaining some sort of permission to ask naive questions and for somebody to give you a fairly extended or comprehensive answer. Um, but it's not really about learning their job. It's understanding the work and understanding the interactions in the work. Um, and I think Ed Hutchins um, in his, his book, you know, The uh, Cognition in the Wild, does a great job at really drawing that distinction between understanding the work and learning the work. Yeah, it, it takes a while, but um, I found that the, Best researchers, once they get to that point, once they sort of have that insight, uh, things become a lot easier for them. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Data so, becomes a lot easier to analyze too. Right. Yeah. So, hey, Anne, I wanted to ask you, you have all this experience. You worked in an ICU. I know you've done lots of research in ICU settings. And right now, ICUs are all in the news, right? We're all concerned about... Um, just being overloaded. And I, I just I wondered if you have any insights about work in the ICU that are particularly relevant um, in terms of adaptiveness or risk that are particularly relevant right now as we're experiencing this global pandemic. Oh okay. Um I know that's a big question. It <laughs> is a big question. It's a case of where do you start and from what perspective? In a lot of ways, ICU work is actually very simple. You're really dealing with three basic things. 
which is airway, breathing, and circulation. That's what ICU is about. It's an extended, it's a place, um, it's a place of resuscitation. Um, the idea is to do whatever it takes to maintain an airway, do whatever it takes to maintain breathing, and do whatever it takes to maintain circulation. Because if you don't have any of those three, you don't have a live patient. Those are the those are the key elements, and most of ICU care, not all of it, is geared to that. Certainly in the general ICU, you also get specialist ICUs that deal with um, specialist uh, conditions such as neurological care or burns ICU or um, medical, surgical, cardiovascular, cardiothoracic um, that have particular um, um, subspecialties in ICU. But even in those environments, you're maintaining um, airway, breathing and circulation. So from that point of view, things are pretty simple. Um, it's dealing with all of the factors that um, threaten those three things. So sepsis, infection, dealing with it, minimising or treating infection so that you can maintain effective circulation, um, minimising um, brain swelling in, in the case of head injuries that um, can uh, negatively affect your breathing and, and some parts of your circulation. It's trying to take away the causes of those threats or those threats um, to those three um, areas. Um, the other thing about, so, so in a lot of ways ICU is, is sort of pretty simple in, in its overall, in the overall objectives or overall goals. Um, the other part of it is um, continuity um, is also a factor in ICUs. The rate of change in ICU patients can be very, very rapid. So where um, in, in a chronic or in an outpatient environment and other medical settings, patient change occurs over extended periods of time. And often you don't notice it. So particularly in terms of chronic health until there's a crash, until you get to some sort of a tipping point. In ICUs, that time frame or that long bit of time is contracted. So the time horizons over which you're looking uh, are often hours, um, minutes to hours to days. Uh, so keeping track of those things um, can sometimes be challenging, but you're less likely to get some of the discontinuity issues. And I say that as a broad generalisation, it's not always true. Um, very rewarding in the ICU um, because you also, as much as you get rapid deterioration, you get rapid improvement at the same time. So you deal with the, the depths and the heights of, wow, this patient's really getting better. This is really cool. We've managed to get this patient's blood pressure to make, be maintained at this level and we've managed to turn down all the support for that. That We've done a really, really great job. That's really cool. So a lot of the feedback about um, your performance is also really um, rewarding in that sense. Um, it's high-paced. Um, you get to work together as a team. Um, the support in an ICU amongst um, staff, um, other nurses, 
um, other members of the interdisciplinary team tends to be fairly strong. So strong sense of teamwork um, and shared experience. Um, those things really stand out for me, both from my past, they're the things that I remember about working as an ICU nurse and also the things that I often see in terms of ICUs. Does that answer your question? Yeah, thanks for that reflection. And it kind of makes sense based on what you're describing that um, during this period of uh, COVID, as we're seeing, you know, uh, lots and lots of people in the hospital, that these are the folks who are really experiencing burnout. Oh, um, given the intensity that you're describing, the connection with the patients, the teamwork, all of that. And in the COVID, in a normal ICU, you get variation. So you get, um, you might have one or two patients who are really, really sick, um, a couple of patients that you might be observing, a couple of patients who are nearly ready to be discharged um, from the ICU. So you get a lot of variation in, in where patients are at in their journey through the ICU. With COVID, my sense of the COVID situation, and I've not been in it, um, is that it's unrelenting. It's just unrelenting. Um, it's one patient, the next patient, the next patient, the next patient, the next patient. Um, and it's just unrelenting. Um, it's full on, full go all the time. And um, while you may have um, situations where you get um, a run on certain, you know, certain issues, beginning of winter you get lots of car accidents so you get a run on car accidents but it's um short-lived it's not ongoing and ongoing and when are we going to see the end of this so i really empathize with um clinicians who are currently working in these environments uh, trying to maintain morale trying to maintain um a sense of um perspective trying to get some time out and, you know, downtime from what seems to be just an unrelenting onslaught of COVID patients. Um, very, very difficult to deal with. Yeah, and I, I think I think we are seeing that in spite of all these challenges, these folks are um, remarkably resilient. Like they keep coming back. <laughs> well, um, it, I think that remains to be seen. Um, you know, um, the, you can't you can't work at this pace indefinitely. Um, and coping strategies, uh, resilience, resilience is an interesting kind of a concept. Um, I once asked, there's a, a concept in in medicine called a physiological reserve. That's um, a little bit like the concept of resilience. And um, I asked a physician once to explain to me what physiological reserve was. And he said, well, put your, put your arm out. Stick your arm out at right angles to your body and just leave it there. Just sit there and leave it there and leave it there and leave it there and leave it there. And um, it's, it's going to get tired after a little while and you can change the position and sort of wiggle your wrist around. But just leave your arm there and leave it there and leave it there and leave it there. And eventually... Um, your muscles get so tired that you can't leave it there anymore. And that's a measure of, that is, that's what physiological reserve is. It's the time and the effort 
between putting your arm up and when your arm actually collapses and you can't do it any further. And resilience is a little bit like that. We kind of have a have a pivot unless we can renew it um, and unless we can maintain that, that kind of um, buffer of um, capacity to respond, eventually we burn out and we crash. So how resilient people are, they're not indefinitely resilient. How we, how we try to provide opportunities or mechanisms for maintaining that buffer so that people can dip into it, um, that's the challenge. Hmm. So that feels like a really important insight that um, that the health system itself needs to figure out how to do that, how to create that buffer. Yeah, yeah. And, and some of it is in things like shift work. Some of it is in reducing stresses. And this is where electronic health records can certainly uh, play a role. Uh, to what extent are they contributing um, to, to burnout um, or that don't provide those uh, signals that say, hey, you're doing a good job, which is, can also be an important part of resilience, just knowing that, okay, we're getting on top of this. We can deal with this. We can handle this. Um, how do electronic health records contribute to these situations? How can we design these in ways that um, can help minimise some of that stress without substituting one stressor for another stressor? Uh, so those are the things that I get interested in at the moment. Cool. So that actually leads me to my next question. Can you tell us a little bit about your current role at Cerner? Sure. So um, I'm a lead human factors researcher. So I uh, manage a team of um, other human factors researchers and I work very closely with um, UX design uh, team members or colleagues and um, developers and the area of interest that, or the area of my responsibility in, in relation to um, the record is what we call chart review. So those are all of those functions in the electronic record that contribute to clinicians being able to figure out what this patient's story currently is. So things like patient assessments, uh, things like um, understanding where this patient has come from, what the status of this patient is right now, and potentially where they're going to go into the future. So all of that uh, assessment situation awareness, I am up to my eyeballs in that. Uh, so we are doing, hopefully have a paper out next year looking at um, how, how clinicians extract meaning from different kinds of um, laboratory test uh, displays. Uh, that's a, a, a little project that we have going at the moment. Um, but we're also looking at things such as um, how does the problem list actually figure into patient assessments? Um, how is the problem list used across an interdisciplinary team? Um, what information actually should be included with that? What are the contexts in which a problem list might be used, um, both inpatient and outpatient? So that sort of um, gives you some sense of the scope of my work at the moment. Wow. And so what that makes me think of is it's several years back now, you and I wrote a book chapter together 
And at that time, you were talking about and thinking about how do how does the healthcare team get that story of the patient together, and what supports it, and what doesn't. Um, yes. So this is something you've been thinking about for a long time. Oh, absolutely. I've been thinking about this for for a very long time. I guess, and the the sort of the addendum to that book chapter is, okay, we that that was written uh, while I was at Vanderbilt. Right. And, and leave it off a lot of the research that we did there. And now I have the opportunity to start to communicate that research in a practical way to my colleagues and to use the, uh, the knowledge gained then to start to think about how, how that informs solutions. Yeah, I was thinking what an awesome position you're in now to actually influence change, not just highlight the problem, but to think about how we can really address it. That is really cool, Anne. Yeah, and we're sort of starting to do introduce other sorts of um, techniques, such as so this uh, lab review um, or lab um, details study that we did. Um, we analysed that using signal detection, for example. Um, we also looked at strategy. Uh, how do how do clinicians um, group information? Uh, that was a that was a finding that came out of it that we weren't expecting. So. We're really excited about uh, that sort of work, um, but it's um, it's been it's been great to see how and, and our designers are really good with this. You, can, um, I'm not a designer. I am not somebody who has the ability to take a concept and visualize it and create a visualization for it. But I work with hugely talented people who do do that. So I can say here's a problem and our, we work with physicians as well and as a team we can define um, a, a problem but um, our design team can can actually visualise that in many different ways which then gives us the opportunity to test different things. So this is really cool, you know, being able to work with these guys who can um, come up with these prototypes and uh, you know, clickable prototypes that you can put in front of clinicians at really short notice. This is this is really cool. This is really good. <laughs> totally <laughs> enjoying this. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. And then to be able to share it back with them, you know, so, so talk about um, this is how this design really supports perception, you know. Um, this is where perception falls down. One of the things that we found is that people really, in, if you give them um, a set of lab values and a very limited time frame, such as 15 seconds to review this, what do they focus on? Um, they focus on the abnormals. But if you colour the abnormals red versus uh, for um, abnormally high versus blue for abnormally low, is there a difference in in how um, in how they perceive those um, elements? And it turns out amongst our participants that yes, there was. They gravitate towards the red, not the blue. Interesting. Um, and so, from a signal detection point of view, we had lots of false alarms that were red, and lots of misses that were blue. So that starts to change the way we think about well, how are we going to communicate our abnormals? Does that change our design standards? Hmm, maybe we need to do repeat the study. So, I mean, these things make a real difference. Right. This makes a difference, and, and that blows my mind. Yeah, that's that's really cool, Anne. Um, 
And I love that you're in a, the position you are um, because, uh, you know, it's the synergy, right? You need the creative skilled designers, but you also need the, the, the scientist mind that can ask those questions and, and say, just because we saw this once, is that enough? Maybe we should look at this, you know, recruit some more people and make sure the effect um, stands up. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which is what we're, and we're doing that follow-up study. I've got my last participant this afternoon for the follow-up study on that. So I haven't started crunching the numbers on it yet, but uh, we're looking forward to being able to, uh, to communicate this to the broader, um, to the, to the broader world because it was a a quasi-experimental design. So we're not giving away trade secrets. Um, It's pure, pure old research. It's great. And, and I'm very, very fortunate to work for an organization that doesn't have any problem with that. Yeah, that's what, that's wonderful. So, so you're learning new things. Um, but, but, but I, I was fortunate since, since Laura dropped her uh, co-publication, I'll go ahead and drop one of my own. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to, uh, to have you invite me to participate in a uh, sort of a meta-analysis of qualitative research in healthcare, uh, and also some design guidance documents for uh, clinical decision support. And so you're learning new stuff now, but you and the community have sort of been at this for a while, and we know a lot about what works and what probably doesn't work. Uh, and and we've, we've put together these you know, everything from articles to treatises and guidance documents and those sorts of things. I'm kind of wondering what, what your personal experience has been and getting feedback about those, uh, you know, those guidance types of documents. Um, what kind of feedback have you gotten from the various communities that you, that you work in? That paper that you're talking about seems to be referenced an awful lot. So um, <laughs> that's, which is nice. I think that's, that's the same one. Anyway, um, so probably not so much feedback about those directly. Um, indirectly, I think one of the things that really surprises, the, the one of the blind spots that you have as an academic researcher is that you really don't know what the challenges are with the technology itself. So you sort of, as an academic researcher, you publish these papers and you say, well, why doesn't anybody take this up? I mean, this is really obvious. This is really, you know, come on, guys, what's the story here? And um, you get into these these big corporate environments and things... There are technological limitations. Um, There are issues of migration, such as um, legacy systems that need to be um, uplifted to modern technology. And it's those constraints within the legacy systems that mean that, that, and there are a whole variety of them. You know, there are a huge um, variety of just constraints in in the technology. Yes, it can do wonderful, wonderful things. Um, but it's also very constrained in, in a lot of ways. Um, and the technology is moving. So where do we actually implement this? What do we do about um, systems that are, that are older or versions that are still out there that haven't been upgraded? Um, so understanding what the, the, 
the nexus is between, yeah, it's great that we could do these research, this research and we can come up with these really cool guidelines, but <laughs> are they implementable? You know, can we implement these things? What is it going to take to implement these things? Where should we implement these things? Um, that's a whole different ball game. And in the big scheme of things, what's the priority for implementing these things? So it becomes a, yeah, you, 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 look at, you look at the research that we've done and you say, yeah, that's what we need to do, but how do we implement that? How do we actually get it done? Um, so it, it, it's somewhat challenging, yes. <laughs> so is this just a case of, um, of sort of nascent, uh, you know, emerging fields and findings uh, being way out in front of, of the lagging systems. Um, and so if, if we carry that forward in, in 10, 20 years, are we going to see the systems that um, we're suggesting be designed? Are we um, going to see them implemented? The hope, I think, is that we're, we're coming up with systems and development processes. The two aren't separated. There's, there's not only the the capability of the technology, but also the, the development processes um, that uh, the, hold the promise of being able to implement changes a lot more adaptively, a lot more flexibly and a lot more, and a lot, lot more quickly, a lot faster. Um, whether that's a good thing or not, given the propensity towards unintended consequences, um, I'm not sure. So certainly in, in uplifting from old um, legacy systems to say cloud-based systems, the promise is that we should be able to um, implement change much more rapidly and have it distributed through the cloud a lot more, um, a, 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 a lot faster. In safety critical environments, is that necessarily a good thing? Hmm. We put recommendations out there, but when we put guidelines out there, what we're really putting out there is a hypothesis. We hypothesise that if you follow this guideline that um, more good things will happen than bad things, but they're still hypotheses and they're still guidelines. Um, they're not an absolute truth. The context can change. Um, so maybe we're substituting one set of problems for another set of problems. Um, I'm not sure that we're going to be out of a job anytime soon. So, yeah, it sort of remains to be seen, you know, the process changes that are occurring even in the way that we develop systems. Um, do they always lead to good outcomes? There's a lot of talk about agile and agile processes. Um, agile processes, I'm sure you're very aware, are really designed for development. Where does um, human factors work fit into that? How does it fit into that? Again, um, it's the way that CERNA has, um, has um, worked to implement um, that, uh, that, that whole process is to really have very long discovery and um, pre-agile phases. And so that once we, once we come up with um, um, a, a, a solution that we've evaluated, that we've researched, that we've designed, that we hand that off to development, and at that point the development becomes an agile process to implement the design that, we've, um, that we, we hand over. Um, having worked through several 
um, different companies that have tried to implement Agile, this by far has been the most successful in my humble opinion, where we do get those opportunities to, to do discovery work, to, to put that into various different design um, solutions, to undertake formative evaluations on those and to iterate those designs um, before we hand it off to developers rather than trying to do um, human factors, human-computer interaction type work right in the middle of development. Um, nobody seems to be happy with that. I haven't been happy with that approach in the past. So, so to bring this a bit back to the NDM focus, I'm wondering, um, and you've mentioned a couple of uh, folks along the way, but I'm wondering if you can offer just a few people that have kind of influenced not just your maybe your NDM uh, sensibilities, but just general uh, approach and, and how you go about thinking about your work. Um, I definitely have to hat off to uh, to Laura Militello and Gary Klein and um, that whole cohort, hugely influential on my work um, and the numerous discussions um, that we've had. And that includes you too, Brian. You've been involved in some of those conversations. So conversations with the NDM um, uh, community have, have been incredibly influential in the way that I see the world, the way I understand my work and the way I understand what um, my priorities as a human factors researcher are. Um, so. I have to give huge amounts of credit to, to you guys. Other people that have been very influential um, on me would be Eric Holnagel and um, Dave Woods um, for introducing those ideas of resilience, um, for changing the way that I understand safety, one of the biggest um, shifts in Healthcare um, IT has been the European Union's um, re regulations on or regulation that determines that electronic health records are, are medical devices. Um, and so now we think about safety like hugely. We undertake hazard analyses. But the, the thing that um, Holnagel and Woods uh, really emphasise is not so much the, the, the hazards part of it but the safety to elements of it, which really start to change the way that you look at design to say how do we actually enhance safety more than just mitigating hazards. Um, that's been hugely influential in the way that I talk about uh, safety um, in my work and to my colleagues and to my team members as well is that you know, let's 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 not, yes let's mitigate the hazards absolutely definitely let's mitigate hazards but how do we actually improve safety um, and that's a different conversation um, and it's a very productive conversation so those guys have been really influential um, in my work. And I also have to um, acknowledge people like Penny Sanderson, my um, the, the, the folks that I still keep in touch with um, from my PhD for actually setting me up for a lot of this, for this sort of work, um, for Penny's insistence that um, as Australians we need to get off the island. There's a whole world out there that we really need to, to experience um, and engage with. Um, her her, uh, her, her um, motivation um, to move out of Australia, the confines of um, a small country, 
um, like Australia, um, to a bigger world. It was also massively influential um, in in terms of my career path. I have kind of a, a shifting gears question here a little bit. I'm wondering, let's. I want you to imagine that you meet a complete stranger who claims to practice naturalistic decision-making. On pain of death, you're given one question to determine if they do indeed practice NDM. What do you ask? I think I'd be asking what questions, if you were to go and speak to a clinician or a, um, a, a, a person whom you were interested in studying, what are the types of questions that you, you ask them? Um, and the sort of answers that I would know an NDM person um, because they ask somebody to tell them stories um, about the kind of work, you know, critical, critical incidents um, or critical um, encounters that they've been personally engaged in. So they have some understanding of CDM, pretty, um, critical decision method, um, that they also are very much focused not on what people do, not on the behaviours of what people do, but how people approach the problem cognitively, um, how they make sense of the world that they're working in, how they, um, the nature of the information that they capture, um, how that information is turned into sort of strategies thinking about things like um, feedback, but certainly storytelling is a big part, I think, of um, NDM. And being able to take a story apart, be able to, you know, sort of pull out the, the, the flow of events, but also the, the various, using that story as a, as, a, as, a, as a jumping off point to really explore the, the world that that person works in. And I'm somewhat biased because I certainly work in a, in a in an industry where cognition and information work is really the dominant nature of the work. So in other work, in other environments, um, the focus may be different. But storytelling, I think, is a big um, part of Indian. I love that answer. I think um, especially because I mean, you live in a world where people use all kinds of techniques to try to understand work. Um, and there are lots of good techniques, but but I do think that idea of getting people to tell stories and then unpack that story um, is so powerful. Oh, absolutely. Um, Gary's book in that first couple of chapters about um, and, you know uh, the, the power of intu- intuition, uh, where he talks about uh, firefighters and and sitting in the in the fire in the station, the fire station. Um, with time on their hands and getting them to tell stories and his ability to listen and unpack those systematically and methodically without dehumanising those stories in any way, I think is really, really powerful and a great, um, and a great uh, intro to naturalistic decision-making. Ed Hutchins' stories too about um, how people use um, uh, artefacts um, in distributed cognition, the role of those artifacts that takes um, that takes what's in people's heads out and puts it in the world and how the world and the people interact, I think is really, um, really, is, re- is really clever um, and very insightful. 
All right, we're down to our last and final question. And it is one that we've asked others. And Laura is so much better at this game than I am. But we're going to try it again. We'd like you to tell us two truths about yourself and one lie. And we are going to try to guess the lie. Okay. I I I noticed this. You, you sent me a, a, a sort of a guideline or you warned me that I would be asked this question. So I had to think very hard about how, how what um what I how I was going to answer this um so I've sort of hit my the question that this is the answer to is what skills have, what COVID skills have you learned what learnt skills have you learnt um while you've been in COVID lockdown so here are my three skills two of them are truths and one of them is a lie my first skill is that I've been slowly working my way through Bach's Preludes and Fugues on the piano because there was a piano in the house that we bought and we paid 50 bucks for it. Um, my second skill is that um, I've learnt um, how to be how to do some stone masonry with dry stone walling. And my third skill, um, because I'm an avid cyclist, is I've also learnt how to be a bike mechanic. Two of those are truths and one of them is a lie. That is such a brilliant way to put this back on us. Laura has been cheating because she would often know these intimate details about people that that uh, that I wouldn't know, and so she uses those against me. But this is this is this is even ground here. Yeah. So are you going to go first, Brian? No, no way. I'm not going first. You go first. <laughs> okay. I know you've been an avid bicyclist forever, and so I'm. I believe you've always been a bike mechanic. I'm going to guess that's the lie. And the new skills are the piano playing and the stone masonry. That's my guess. You are absolutely correct. <laughs> that was also my guess. I haven't played the piano for since I was in high school. And this piano is here because I just it's not an instrument that you can put in your pocket and carry around. Um, so, you know, I should have learnt the flute or something like that. So I've... Um, Picked up Bach's Preludes and Fugues, and I'm now up to the D major one. Um, and we've been, and I did learn some stonemasonry because we've got a, uh, we had some uh, some retaining walls that were completely collapsing, and they were dry stone walls. So we ended up with a stonemason in there. But he 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 was his thing is teaching people how to do this. So um, we had. Two, he came across, he came up from um, Kansas um, and uh, we rebuilt these walls and so now I have my little stonemason's hammer and my bell-shaped hammer and my chisel and we chisel out retaining walls but no I'm not a bike mechanic so I do ride a bike but I leave the mechanics to the mechanics. <laughs> so Brian what were you going to guess? I, w I was actually going to guess that one as well because I knew a bit about the cycling, but um, but yeah, it sounds like uh, it sounds like you're keeping busy then with all the moves and uh, the new roles and, uh, and and building walls. So it was great to catch up with you, Anne. And uh, with that, uh, thank you so much for speaking with us today. And thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a delightful conversation, and I always love talking to you, fellas. You know that we do, and that's why we invited you. Uh, so on, well, on, on that note, uh, for the NDM Podcast, I'm Brian Moon. And I'm Laura Militello. 
Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.